Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for a while. I just came like on. Uh, thank you for your prayers. I wanted to uh, regarding the uh, time that I was away and our missionary for the month is the Morels. And I uh, want to share just a brief story tonight. I'll share more a little bit with our time with them as you're turning to the book of Haggai. As we will spend our time there here this or this morning in the book of Haggai, and uh, but as you're doing that, I wanted to share just a brief story of the Morels. See, about four years ago, Lisa and I were in Germany, and I was the keynote speaker at the German field conference for biblical ministries worldwide, and we had taken a group of uh, young people, college age and high school age, to Germany with us to lead the youth and the VBS for the kids. And so we were busy all week long. Well, if you go to Stuttgart or if you go to Kalv, where, uh, near where the conference is, uh, then you have to eat. You're in the northern edges of the Black Forest. You have to eat Black Forest cake. It's kind of like the prerequisite of going there. And so I had this little cafe and, you know, the romantic uh, European thing that you would do with your spouse. You go and you find an outdoor cafe and you sit down for some espresso and some Black Forest cake. So I was sitting there and uh, ordered the Black Forest cake for Lisa and I, and as we were sitting there, Joe Morell, our missionary that is the one we're highlighting this month, walks past and inside uh, to meet with a group of men, BMW missionaries who are inside, and uh, they go and have fellowship every year, and it is a wonderful thing as they've gathered from all over Europe. And so they're inside, and they're enjoying the fellowship. Lisa and I enjoy our espresso and We finished the Black Forest cake, and I go to pay for it, and the lady who was, the the waitress who was taking up our check said that she doesn't take credit cards. And I said, well, you did two years ago, where I had been there two years. She goes, no, we stopped, no credit card. I thought, oh boy. I don't travel with cash hardly ever, and in this case, I wasn't traveling with any cash, and so so I said, "I, I have no cash she said, well, there's an ATM. So I ran over to the ATM. It didn't like my card. There's another ATM across town. I ran down there while Lisa's sitting in this romantic setting by herself. I ran down. The other ATM machine doesn't have a credit card or won't accept my credit card. I come back. I said, the only thing I can do is there's a group of missionaries inside. I need to go ask them to pay for my Black Forest cake and my date with my wife. Tell you what, that is a humbling experience. I go inside and Joe, I said, I'm sorry, I'm asking you guys this. This is a humbling question to ask you, but I don't have cash to pay for our date. And I said it just like that because I was nervous. Here, I'm the keynote speaker. And I'm asking them to pay for my date with my wife. And Joe says, what'd you have? I said, well, we had black forest cake and some espresso. And he goes, you ate the last piece. (laughs) So for four years, I have anticipated going back and uh, seeing them. And so when Joe and Ursula walked in and Joe says, you know, we'd really like to have some time with you. I said, absolutely. I owe you a piece of Black Forest cake. So I took him down to the cafe and we enjoyed an afternoon together. I'll share more of those details later, but just a joyful time uh, to be in Germany, to be with some of our missionaries, to encourage them to speak uh, during their conference, to lead some of the kids' ministries there. So thank you for your prayers. Uh, Thank you for your prayers as you have prayed for me and my travel, for my family as they remained here. On Tuesday, well, really starting on Monday, I left Stuttgart. 22 hours later, I arrived here in Grand Rapids. And so 22 hours of airport and travel. I was very, very exhausted. I don't sleep on airplanes very well. And uh, so it's been a shortened week. But nonetheless, we dig into our new study, the book of Haggai, together this morning. And And if you have never studied the book of Haggai, you're probably not alone. In fact, if you're reading through the Bible, you're excited to see the book of Haggai because it takes three or four chapters a day of reading, and you come to the book of Haggai and you finish the entire book in one day. And then you move on to Zechariah as well. And so you're reading through, you're perhaps reading not to necessarily retain, but to complete. 
Today we're going to begin a study where we're going to be in the book of Haggai about four or five weeks together. It is a book that fits to the end of Daniel. And so having studied the book of Daniel on Sunday evenings, we want to dig deeply into this book because there are some timely and contemporary messages we must understand as we dig here into the book of Haggai together. Uh, You may say, well, how do you pronounce Haggai, Haggai, Haggai? (laughs) There are actually 226 English pronunciations for the book of Haggai. I don't know if all of them are legitimate. That's just how many there are. And so as we dig into it, you say, well, I say Haggai, and some say Haggai, and some say Haggai. And I say, yes, Uh, it's all of those and many, many more. And so as we dig into this book, it's one we're not familiar with. It's one perhaps we never spent time in. As Scott mentioned a moment ago, it's probably one of those where the pages still stick together even. And if one page sticks together, the whole book is stuck together. And that's how long it is. We're going to spend some time here, and we're going to seek to understand the direction of the Lord in understanding this book as we understand God giving priority, or giving rather priority to God. This is a key essence of this letter, that we be those who give priority to God. And that is our title this morning, but our idea that we follow is followers of God must put an end to eventual obedience. We are very guilty of being those who put off till tomorrow what we could be doing today when it relates to things of spirituality, when it relates to things of the Word of God, and when it relates to Christ Himself. And that is where Haggai is going to receive a message, and his ministry lasts almost as long as we're going to be in the book. Haggai's ministry is only about two to three months long, and in that time he's going to deliver four messages We're going to follow that same pattern. We're going to follow the same four messages and deliver those as well as Haggai has an important message from the Lord to deliver to the people of Israel. As we begin in this narrative, this instruction and narrative, we want to dig deeply into it, but we need the Lord's blessing to do so. So let us ask the Lord's blessing now. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity we have both to travel to Germany over the past recent weeks, to arrive there safely and back safely, to minister to our missionaries who are there, to be a blessing to them. We also are thankful for the opportunity to dig deeply into this passage, which reminds us that we are often guilty of eventual obedience. It's easy for us to be deceived into thinking that through the fast-paced world around us, we'll deal with those things first and then the things of the Word of God or the things of you second. Lord, we know that the instruction that is given through the book of Haggai is for the people of Israel. It is related to the promises that are theirs, uniquely theirs. But we also know that the principles apply to us as well. And so I pray that we would be able to draw out the principles, to understand the context and the principles that relate therein. Help us to apply them, to be those who will not follow the pattern that we see here in the people of Israel in the first part of chapter 1, where they are eventually going to get to the building of the temple. May we be those who set at first task, as first priority, the things of the Lord, that your name would be glorified in our time together in your word. Lord, I praise you for the opportunity to study such an important minor prophet, one that we've often not studied. Pray that you would help us to have understanding of it, to apply the truths that we learn in it, that your name would be glorified. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As we move in to chapter 1 of the book of Haggai, we begin with these words. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. We're going to start here with a timely message, and we're going to begin to see this is really similar uh, to a lot of the New Testament epistles, because these are direct instructions from the Lord as the Lord is giving this timely message, and specifically, He's giving it to a time in the nation of Israel when they have come up out of Babylon. They have arrived there about 18 years ago back in Jerusalem. They started the work of building the foundation to the temple, and everything comes to a screeching halt. 
pressures have caused them to slide into a a willful negligence. And the Lord is going to call them out as Haggai's ministry is explained for us. We see here, this is the second year of Darius the king. This is not Darius the Mede. This is a Darius that comes later. It's 18 years or so after we see Israel returned under Cyrus in the book of Daniel. And so not much time has elapsed. 18 years has elapsed since Cyrus would send out the nation of Israel back to their land and they would begin to build the foundation of the temple there. In 18 years, Haggai's prophetic ministry would come onto the scene. It's short-lived. But through a series of four messages, he watches as the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel respond to the admonition of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. Each of these four messages were given at a very specific time. Did you catch it here? The second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month. This is August 29th in the year 520 B.C. That's pretty specific. That gives us the exact day. It gives us the exact day that Haggai began to preach. And it just happens to nearly coincide with when we begin to study the book of Haggai together. This is August 29th. You can imagine that in Jerusalem there is the promise of fall coming. But it's somewhat sweltering heat, depending on the day. The flowers have long since died off, and it's the green, scrubby vegetation that remains when Haggai begins to speak. Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. Actually, one of my favorite places in Jerusalem, if we are able to go there someday, I will take you there. It is actually owned by a Palestinian. And it's one of my favorite places, and it's where Haggai and Zechariah, Zechariah and Malachi were buried. It's unmarked. You just barely know it. It's a slot tomb. It's like a catacomb. You go down inside, and it is there on the edge of the Mount of Olives where this prophet is buried. And we have opportunity to study his ministry over the next few weeks together. Israel has received from the Lord this instruction as Cyrus dismisses them to go back home. They've received the instruction to begin construction of the temple. The foundation has been laid, but Israel's return to the land was met with hostility from the Gentile people surrounding them. And while the foundation had been started, the building of the temple had stalled out. And in fact, we know from Ezra chapter 4 that there is significant problems. There are problems with the Gentile nations rising up counselors to send them to Babylon, literally lawyers to send them to Babylon to stop the construction of the temple. Israel had originally listened to the instruction of the Lord, but now 18 years had gone by. 16 years from Ezra chapter 4 verse 5 had elapsed, and they are complacent, and they're discouraged. It's easy for us in our modern era to have the outside world impact our obedience to Christ. We see in our fast-paced society the ease in which Christians are called out in the media, or Christian movements are denounced And it's easy for us to become discouraged and complacent. And that is where Haggai's ministry begins. Haggai and Zechariah are going to take two very different approaches. Haggai is very direct. He's going to be right in the face of the religious leaders. Zechariah is going to take a different approach. He's going to be more caring and loving, comforting in his message. Both are necessary, as we will see by the end of chapter 1. Both are necessary. So that is Haggai's ministry, but we recognize that Haggai's ministry is not Haggai's message. Haggai's message is that which comes from the Lord. It's not his own. Haggai's message is, while brief, the messages, four of them, that come from the Lord. And his ministry is only going to last a very short period, but the word of the Lord came to him four times. And we're going to see this phrase repeated over and over and over and over in the book. Why would we see such repetition? 
Because Haggai is making it very clear to us that this was not his message. He wasn't discouraged. He wasn't frustrated with the nation of Israel to the point where he stood up one day in the town square and said, let us start construction of the temple. This wasn't his message. It was the Lord's message. It was the instruction of the Lord. And the Lord is going to call out the hearts of the people in the passage before us today. And so we see that it is the word of the Lord. And we see the recipients of the message specifically. Notice in verse 1 here, it says that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to two individuals. First, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Two individuals. Haggai's message had an audience of two to begin with. His proclamation would be given to Zerubbabel. And we stop here because for us, Zerubbabel is a difficult name to pronounce or a fun name to pronounce once you get it. And then we move on. Who is Zerubbabel? Well, we're introduced to Zerubbabel. Actually, all the way back, he was the one who had led the first expedition back to Jerusalem. He is a demonstration, a living demonstration of the mercy of God and the faithfulness of God to keep his word from one generation to the next. He was the one that God would use after 70 years of exile to lead the first exiles back to Jerusalem. But he himself is a demonstration of the mercy of God. We're going to study him throughout the book, but we understand that he is of the noble line of David. While he will never ascend to the rule, to the throne, because of the sin of his family line, there is the elements of the mercy of God and the remembrance of God to the covenants that have been made to the people of Israel. Zerubbabel is a key figure, most likely not seen as significant in his day, other than he is the governor of Jerusalem. But he is the one that is mentioned in the genealogies of Christ's line in the Gospels. He is the one who would show to the nation of Israel that God was not done with them and is not done with them. While he is not king, he is governor. And therefore, he is the political leader of Israel. Also, the message is directed to Joshua the high priest. Joshua the high priest. Joshua the high priest represents the spiritual line, the spiritual leadership of Israel. So you have Joshua who represents the spiritual leadership and you have Zerubbabel who represents the political leadership of Israel. And so who is Haggai addressed, addressing his messages to? The entirety of the nation of Israel. And he's speaking right to the two leaders that need it the most. By default, as we'll see throughout the book, you have not just the spiritual line and the political line, but if you get both of those leaders, you get the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are essential through both their political and spiritual leaders. God is speaking to them. And God is showing to the nation of Israel where they have disobeyed. And that is where he moves quickly now to the misdirected priorities. The misdirected priorities that we follow here begin in verse 2. And those run all the way through verse 11. But let me just start here in verse 2. The scripture there says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. There's the problem. That's the problem the Lord is addressing. It is interesting how succinct the Lord makes it. There is a problem, and the problem is the people have decided in their hearts not to build the temple. There is a theological justification to our delayed obedience to our eventual obedience. And it's not just for the people of Israel, it's for you and I as well. The Lord identifies the problem. The problem is the people of Israel have moved from being prevented to build 18 years earlier to conveniently neglecting to build now in the book of Haggai. They've been moved from opposition to there's no more opposition. There's no one saying, stop, don't build. There's the people of Israel saying, oh, we can't build. We'll upset our neighbors. Sixteen years had elapsed from Ezra chapter 4, verse 5, to now. But politically and socially, there's a new king in Persia. It's now Darius. 
The political climate was stable and favorable to finish the work of building the temple. Yet the temple lay at its foundations. And literally, the idea is there is a pile of rubble that sits where the temple should sit. When the Babylonians had destroyed the temple in Israel's rebellion against the Babylonians, the Babylonians had just destroyed the temple in a pile of rubble, and there it sat. But now, while the foundation was there, none of the rest had been constructed. And the people of Israel had conveniently neglected. Eventually, they'll get to it. You and I must understand this truth drawn from the text. The Lord places the blame for the situation not on distant powers, but rather on the people's procrastinating excuses. And he does the same today. When we don't see the Lord's blessings, which are not the same as we see in the text, we understand that. That's for Israel and the promises to Israel. But when we feel that the Lord is distant, when we feel like our work is in vain, we must recognize that there could potentially be our own procrastinating excuses at work. And the Lord doesn't blame the distant powers or the outside external forces for Israel's disobedience. He blames the hearts of the people for their eventual obedience. I'll get around to it. The complications of building had established in the hearts of the people a theology for eventual obedience, a theological justification. We can't do this. Because if we do, it violates all of the pressures from without. And it would certainly offend our God to do so. That is where the people of Israel had gotten to, and you and I fall into that same trap in our day and age, in the contemporary setting today. We fall into this trap of saying, well, there's pressures. I don't want, I don't want to succumb to the pressures. I don't want those people to really have reason to hate Christ, so I'm going to back off. And I'll get around to it eventually, but I'm not going to share Christ because it might be offensive. Or I'm not going to disciple today because really I'm busy and I've got these other people who I need to reach out to, and so I'm not going to disciple today. Or I'm not going to live for Christ today. I'll do it tomorrow. That is a theological justification. And the Lord says there are no excuses. Notice what he says, verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Isn't that a fascinating question? The Lord has not come at it directly yet. He has addressed it. He's addressed the heart, but he's coming at it a little bit from the side. He's not saying, you have neglected to obey me. He is saying, why is my house not being built? God is not pleased with the decisions that the people have made, and he's calling out the condition of their heart rather than the actions. In our fast-paced world of instant one-click gratifications, we have ironically fallen into the same habits of the people of Israel. We have put off what needs to be done. We have added all of this technology so that we could be faster, better, and more equipped, better capable of accomplishing what is to be the Lord's work. But instead, we have ironically just let it slip off and we've fallen into the same habits as the people of Israel. We'll do it tomorrow. We have neglected for a more convenient time to use our gifts for the Lord within the church fellowship. We've withheld our offerings saying, well, I'll do that tomorrow. Or we've assumed that there is another time to worship with the saints and we've got something else more pressing, more priority to do today. That is where we are as a church in our contemporary society. The people of Israel had taken care of their homes. They'd taken care of their homes and in excess. But they likely believed they didn't have time or the money to rebuild the temple. In fact, we know, as we'll move into chapter 2 and the discouragement that comes to the people, we know that they believe they didn't have the money. Well, the Lord hasn't provided the money. We know he's provided the task, but he hasn't provided the money, so therefore we're not going to build. Oddly enough, their homes had wood paneling, and it's interesting that the Lord would draw that out. Why would he draw that out? Because 
All of our homes today have wood construction in them. Why would he draw that out? Because this is not normal in Jerusalem. Wood construction or wood paneling is not normal in Jerusalem. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you're not going to see wood construction anywhere. The paneling was a symbol of extravagance, of wealth. It was typically reserved and probably had been prepared for the temple itself. So it is likely that 18 years earlier, the people of Israel had come back, maybe bringing supplies with them from Babylon or retrieving the supplies from Lebanon to build wood paneling for the temple. And instead of it going into the temple, the foundation had been laid and it was sitting there for 18 years. And the people said, I've got to build my house. And they began to scavenge wood from the temple site. It's possible, even likely, that the wood that they used to panel their own homes had been originally sourced to build the temple. And yet they had neglected to build the temple. Notice the consequences. There's two sets of consequences for us. First is found in verses 5 and 6. The scripture says this, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you are never You never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. The Lord, through Haggai, encourages the people of Israel to reflect on the cost of their actions. You have no money because you're not obeying. You have no food, or you have food, but it's not enough because you're not obeying. You have water, but it's not enough because you're not obeying. You have clothing, but it's not enough because you're not obeying. It is vital that we firmly know the audience is the people of Israel. Why is that vital? This is not a health, wealth, and prosperity passage. There is no such passage in all of the pages of Scripture. You cannot do a certain number of things and the Lord will bless you. That is not New Testament theology. That is what, some of that is what was promised to Israel. If you obey the Lord, the Lord would bless the nation of Israel in the physical sense. For you and I, we serve and obey the Lord and there is an eternal blessing. For the nation of Israel, there is the blessing that they are the nation. They are the one that God is using. In fact, we understand this from Isaiah. God is using the nation of Israel to evangelize the world, to show that God is a just God, to show that God is a merciful and compassionate God. That is the role of Israel. But for you and I in the New Testament, we are the ones who are the feet to the message. We are the ones proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, risen, and coming again. And so the promises that we see here that are given is the Lord saying, these are yours, but you are seeing my mercy, but you are not serving me. In your lack of service to me, there are blessings that are withheld. The blessings are there, but their full enjoyment is not yours. So this is specifically for the nation of Israel. The blessings that are of maternal or material blessings are for the nation of Israel. For you and I, we recognize that generally this is true as well. Maybe not material blessings, certainly not the expectation of such, but a life of satisfaction regarding our status in the Lord. Is the Lord there with us? Are we serving? Are we doing what the Lord wants us to do? There will be ups and downs in the Christian life, but if we feel as if God has abandoned us, there's very strong evidence that we have eventually decided to obey God. Eventually we'll get around to it. And that is where the nation of Israel is. They're saying, God, you brought us out of the land, but where are you? God says, I've given you food, I've given you water, I've given you clothing, I've given you money, but it's not enough because you have refused to obey me now. So that is the consequences. He continues on, consider the right priorities. There's another set of consequences, beginning in verse 7. We're going to look at these words that we find now for the second time here in verse 7. Consider your ways. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew it away. I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought in the land and in the hills and on the grain 
the new wine and the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God said, you're not listening. I've shown you. You've worked hard, people of Israel, but you've worked hard after fleeting things. Beloved, that is so true in our contemporary world as well. We are so busy. I mentioned yesterday to Lisa, and and perhaps it's been the last two months of my schedule. Perhaps it's been my uh, travel or whatever it has been, but I said the rain yesterday was just cathartic to me. Just constant rain, lots of it. It just gave me the opportunity just to go. That's what the Lord is saying here. You're so busy. You're exhausting yourself in busyness, but I'm blowing it all away. You're never going to gain ground as long as you're so busy pursuing your things that you neglect to do the things that God wants you to do. There won't be the material blessings in our New Testament age, but there certainly will be the spiritual blessings. God has now given them the command in verse 7. He says, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The Lord says, I want to dwell with you, Israel. This is, of course, different in the Old Testament than today. The people of Israel long for the temple that God may dwell with them. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us today. That is a change in dispensations. But we recognize that this craving for the nation of Israel, the Lord is saying, I desire to be with you, but you have busied yourself constructing your own house and not built my house. Haggai instructs the people of Israel to consider, to meditate, to think upon, to reflect on what immediate obedience would bring. If the people of Israel would establish the glory of the Lord as their priority, they would take the wood and bring it in to make the temple. They had looked at increases, but their pursuits had left them wanting. The right priority then and now is that they please the Lord. And that is what the Lord is reminding them. Consider your ways. Go do now what I have instructed. Follow through in obedience and see the benefit of what the Lord's blessing is. Israel could not get ahead because the Lord would not permit the land to give its produce. Again, we're not Israel, and we do not have the promises and blessings given to Israel if they will obey. But we, in our contemporary age, wonder why we live in a barren land that grows more distant from the Lord when we have placed Him as second, second place in our priorities and at our conveniences. And we are all guilty of it. Some less than others, certainly, but we are all guilty of it. When the Lord becomes second place in our priorities, we wonder why we have slipped. We wonder why churches in this country go silent. We wonder why the gospel of Jesus Christ is now like plowing hard concrete. Having just been in Europe in this past few weeks, I think we are headed there rapidly, what Europe looks like. It is a very, very cold place for the gospel. It is interesting to me that you can walk the streets where the reformers walked. You can walk past the chapels where the great saints of not long ago preached. And they are quiet. There's no sound echoing from their chambers. Because we have made the Lord second place in our priorities. We've allowed Him to be that which conveniences us. And that had happened in 16 years to the people of Israel. Can you imagine the excitement of Zerubbabel leading out from the blue gates in Babylon and leading out after the release from the Persians 
leading out past the striding lions that they had entered in the city of Babylon as captives. Now leading those captives back out to the land that is their own. The excitement to rebuild and restart the temple. And two years go by and it stops. And 16 years go by and there's not even a plan to start to resume. It didn't take a generation, beloved, for the passion and zeal for the Lord to wane. It took 16 years. 16 years. So God says it's time to honor Him in obedience. And Israel has to decide now. Verse 12, <clears throat> Scripture there says this, And Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And listen to this, And the people feared the Lord. The people feared the Lord. Israel decides. The key to this, and the key to this passage, the key to the entire book, is that Israel has now fear, is now fearing the Lord. They had feared the outside forces. They had allowed the outside forces to draw them into a complacency and to putting the Lord into eventual obedience category. And now the Lord has spoken to them through Haggai the prophet. When we respond in obedience to the direction of the Lord, we will act according to His instruction and trust Him. In fact, we notice that this is going to take place in Israel. We're going to see that when we get to verse 15. So file that away in the back of your minds for just a moment. We realize that the nation of Israel is going to hear the word of the Lord. They're going to set to work to do what the Lord has commanded them. So they're going to set to obedience. They come out from their paneled homes and they begin to act in obedience. The primary motivation for their action is that they fear the Lord. This goes straight back to one of our key statements regarding our vision for the year. We are a church that seeks to have thriving roots so that we can have lasting fruits that last beyond 16 years. We don't want our fruits to, to be that which we see rise up and then wither on the vine. We want to be a church fellowship that has lasting, thriving roots that sustain an ever-flowing value of fruit for the glory of the Lord. The key thought to our statement of thriving roots to lasting fruits that fits into this passage is that we want to increase our awe of God, and that is what Israel did. They took God from second place and put him in priority. They moved him from down the list and they moved him back to the top of the list. If we increase in our awe of God, we will respond in a similar fashion to the Israelites. The purposes, the priorities, the will of God will become our purposes, our priority, and our will. How easy it is to allow the inundation of our one-click society to pour in its filth, and we put those priorities further down the list. We will abandon our eventual obedience, and we will seize the opportunity to serve the Lord today if we will obey today, if we will increase in our awe today. And that is the message of hope. It's fascinating to me that there is instruction going on. And then Haggai, verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Notice, too, from verse 12, we didn't mention all, but I'll mention now. Notice, too, he started with two. He started with Zerubbabel and Joshua. And then it's Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of the people. Everybody who's in Jerusalem is now gathered together. These leaders are true leaders indeed. While they have been negligent, they're leaders indeed. Zerubbabel and Joshua have done well in bringing the remnant of the people of God together. That's significant. And Haggai now speaks to all of the remnants, along with Zerubbabel and as well as Joshua. And he speaks to them the words of the Lord, and the people obey the voice of the Lord, and the Lord 
reveals that their change of attitude does not mean that the road ahead will be smooth. In fact, as the book shows, it will come with significant challenges. We get one chapter later and we get significant challenges. But the Lord makes a promise to them. He says, Behold, lo, I am with you. The same promise was made to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verse 15. It was made to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, when he was sent back to Egypt. It was made to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14. It was made to the disciples and you and I in Matthew 28, verse 20. So we need to turn to Matthew 28, verse 20. passage we're very familiar with, we ought to be very familiar with it. We're often more familiar with verse 20, uh, chapter 28, verse 19, but beginning in verse 18 of Matthew 28, and and Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That does not mean that it's going to be easy. It's not going to be easy, but that is the command that's been given to us. And notice verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the same promise that was made to the people of Israel in Haggai's time. I know the construction obstacles will be great, and one of the chief uh, construction obstacles that the nation of Israel is going to face is discouragement from within. They're starting to build the temple, and the older folks, the ones who had seen the original temple, are now moaning over the fact of what the second temple looks like. It's not what the first temple was. It's not Solomon's temple, and they mourn, and the work begins to slow. The Lord says, I am with you. It's not going to be easy, but I'm with you. Beloved, What a key element for us. It is easy to be distracted by the whims and the ways of our one-click society. And we expect the gospel to be one-click. Because that's what everything else is. You want to have something delivered to your house in 24 hours? Go on Amazon, (laughs) one-click. It's even called one-click. 24 hours later, it shows up at your door. We want it now. The gospel is not that way. There will be obstacles to proclaiming the gospel. There will be obstacles to making disciples. And Satan doesn't want us to do that work. But that is the command that you and I have been given. Not the church. You and I have been given. It's done through the church. But it's a ministry that you and I do. And for the people of Israel, they had neglected the work that they were commanded to do. Build the temple. 18 years Two years, the foundation has been going. They've arrived from Babylon and Persia. They've come all the way back to Jerusalem. They started the work. Two years have gone by. Pressures, lawyers have gone back to Babylon, back to the Persian government, and the work has ceased. 16 years go by, and now Israel doesn't need someone else to make excuses. They're making their own excuses why the work can't continue. And the Lord says, no, I am with you. Get to work. I am with you. And notice who begins to work. Verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. Did you catch who started to work? When the people of Israel said, we will obey. When the people of Israel says, Lord, we fear you. It's God who stirred their hearts. It's God who would work through them to accomplish his purposes. There's no question about who begins to work. Haggai reveals to us that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Joshua. And the Lord stirred up the spirits of the remnant of the people. It was not Haggai or Zechariah that could take credit for the work of the people, although both of them were the messengers. But the Lord is the one who begins the work. And the work would be completed. 
In fact, notice verse 15. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth, uh, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Go back to verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. 23 days. 23 days had elapsed in chapter 1. In those 23 days, Haggai speaks to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. 23 days later, chisels and hammers could be heard on the construction site of the temple. The Lord cut through the red tape. Wherever, who had ever established the red tape, the Lord cut through it. Whatever limitations there had been, the Lord no longer allowed the limitations to exist. In 23 days, construction can be heard on the temple site. The time of eventual obedience has come to an end. And I think the same is true for us. The time for eventual obedience has come to an end. We used to tell our kids that slow obedience is no obedience. That was wrought out of frustration of go clean your room and hours later there's no work being done. Or go do this and eventually we'll get around to it. So that was born out of frustration for us. In the study of Scripture, we see the Lord's frustration is holy and righteous with the people of Israel. Illustrate the same principle. Slow obedience is not obedience. The Lord has called us to a task. He's called you specifically to use your gifts within the body of Christ. That is within the fellowship for the well-being and the building up and the establishment of those who sit across the aisles from you this morning. Those who sit in front of you and behind you. To build them up, to establish them, to live in unity with them and their gifts. The Lord has called you to reach out to those who do not yet know Christ as Savior. He has called you to disciple those who do know Christ as Savior. He's called you to live in unity with one another. He's called you to fellowship and worship the Lord together in unity. He's called you to stand in awe of Him. Slow obedience is no obedience. Matthew 28, verse 20, was spoken with the same promise as the people received to build the house of the Lord. I am with you. The road ahead is not easy. The road ahead will be fraught with all kinds of potholes, and not just because it's in Michigan. (laughs) It will be difficult and challenging. The road ahead will have its speed bumps along the way. But the Lord is still building His church. How do we know that? Because we're still here. There's work to be done. Let us not be those who give away to eventual obedience. We'll get around to it someday. Right now, we're too busy clicking. We're too busy receiving immediate satisfaction so we can get more things done, so we'll get around to doing the things that God wants us to do. That's not how the Lord wants us to work. In our fast-paced, one-click society, pause. Reconsider your priorities. Are you doing what the Lord wants you to do? Are you following His will? Are you laying aside your own pleasures for the work that you have been called to do? Stand in awe of God and press ahead in this barren land to see others come to Christ as Savior. That is chapter 1 of the book of Haggai. As we dig into it, we're going to find that there's challenges that arise. There's blessings that come because the nation of Israel will follow through what God has said for them to follow through with. Let us follow their eventual example, not their current example at the beginning of chapter 1. Let us be more like them at the end of chapter 1. Those who have laid aside eventual obedience to follow and to pursue the things of the Lord. Let's close our time in the word of God and a word of prayer as we continue to sing. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to respond now 
to your word. We want to be those who take what we've heard from the example of the people of Israel in the book of Haggai and apply it. Lord, we know that the situations are different, and we certainly understand them to be not the same. We know that the people of Israel are not the people of the New Testament, are not the church. We understand that truth. We understand that what you've called us to is not the same as what you've called them to. And yet you would still use the nation of Israel to demonstrate to the nations around them that you are God. Lord, I praise you that we have the same opportunity to proclaim to the nations around us that you are God. To proclaim to the nations around that Christ is the Savior. I pray that we would not accept eventual obedience. That instead we would be those who seek your will and understand it. And when we understand it, that we would apply it instantly that we'd lay aside our priorities and instead implant your priorities, that we would see ourself as second and you as first, that we would stand in awe, the fear of you. Lord, in that vein, we praise you because we are fearfully and wonderfully made in your image. We praise you because the struggles that we deal with in our world today are not new, They are not that which caught you off guard. And you have placed us here to be your mouthpieces. So I pray that you would equip us to be found found as faithful mouthpieces of your grace and your mercy to this lost and dying generation. That they would hear Christ boldly proclaimed from our lips. And that they, with their lips, would extol your excellencies. That you would receive the glory and the honor. Lord, thank you for the time we could spend in your word. Thank you for the example of the Israelites, both in their negative example and in one chapter, their positive example. Thank you that they would put aside eventual obedience. May we do the same for your glory, for our good. Lord, we love you. We pray that now that as we rise and sing a response to your word, that we would do so as hearts willing and able to be submissive to your will and your direction. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we continue in song.